Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there, welcome to Coindesk TV. You are watching The Hash. It's a Thursday. We're going to get you up to speed on all that's going on in the world of crypto on this fine day. Starting with... Will, Will, lead us off. What do you got? Oh, we got a lot going on today. In D.C., we have to go to D.C. And we'll have a special guest on the show in a second to actually talk more in depth about the D.C. scene. But we have to catch up with Elizabeth Warren to begin the day. Elizabeth Warren is no friend of crypto. And now she is praising basically the enemy of everyone in crypto. That would be SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. Gary Gensler is not a beloved figure in most corners of crypto because he's clamped down on a lot of different projects. Most recently, the Genesis and Gemini feud is getting probed by the SEC for its alleged involvement as an unregistered security, which is not a great look. Uh, According to a new report this morning, Elizabeth Warren has been praising Gary Gensler, saying that he has been clamping down on the industry after the former Donald Trump presidency and administration really fueled crypto speculation. She's taking a victory lap after what happened with FTX as well. This is not uncommon to see from Elizabeth Warren. And many, many times at Capitol Hill hearings, she has said that she is no friend of crypto, seeing as sort of like an enemy to the US dollar, as well as just a lot of people trying to scam money out of ordinary Americans' pockets. Zach, I'm throw the story off to you to start the day. Again, this is not uncommon, but we don't love to see it either. Yeah, fighting words. Quote, that's why the industry is scared of a strong SEC. And that's why it's spending millions of dollars each year lobbying to escape SEC oversight. So Liz Warren out here coming strong at the crypto industry with some longstanding reservations that she's had with the space. Some of them fair, right? I mean, FTX has gone to show itself as a big old massive cluster. And it's a really bad look for the crypto industry that the quote unquote trusted voice of the crypto industry on Capitol Hill turned out to be an alleged fraudster. So the fact that this is happening is no surprise. I think the SEC hasn't especially done a great job at protecting consumers when it comes to crypto. They've picked their fights here and there. They've alleged things or securities here and there sort of peripherally to some other actions that they've taken. So the idea that the SEC 
is indeed a champion of protecting consumers against the ills of the crypto industry is a bit misguided, maybe misfounded, but it doesn't mean that Liz Warren is not going to use this as an opportunity to sound the alarm, but she sees as a space that's growing and potentially growing to the point where the contagion can spill over into the financial lives of normal non-crypto using people. We're not there yet, but obviously these alarm bells are being raised. And in the wake of FTX, it certainly makes sense that you would hear stuff like this. Whether or not it's founded, the SEC is indeed the, the white knight here. I think that's the question. And I'll toss it over to Adam on that note. Yeah, I mean, I think that this comes back to what we always see from the political space, which is narrative versus reality. The narrative is that the SEC's role is to protect investors. The reality is, is that if they wanted to protect investors, they would have given us rules that would have been tailored to the technology rather than just trying to essentially use rules that they don't have to explain or justify to anybody because they were already passed for other purposes. That's kind of the crux of the rulemaking process and the reason why it's been so irritating for those of us who have been in the industry for 10 years or more at this point to see these types of things is that, yes, now that FTX has happened, uh, now that Genesis has you know, shut down withdrawals and stuff like that, now the SEC is like, hey, there might be a problem here. We've noticed that you're doing something that could endanger customer funds. Well, again, to the extent that that's true, they had 17 months, you know, 20 months with that Gemini program, something like that, to actually indicate that, hey, this is a problem that you need to deal with to create new rules, a whole bunch of different things that could have been done. None of that stuff happened. What it really comes down to is that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency represents a threat to the US dollar. It doesn't represent a threat in the short term. It represents an existential threat in the more medium term when the US dollar inevitably has to restart its system because the way that things are going are not sustainable and they will not continue if history is any guide. So a lot more to say there, but we can wait for our guest on that. Jen, down to you. Yeah, I agree with everything that everyone has said so far. Adam, to your point, Elizabeth Warren in this article praised enforcement actions against celebrities like Kim Kardashian and Coinbase for insider trading. I just imagined a world, imagine she was praising the SEC for actually having clear regulation that the industry could follow. And if people weren't compliant in a timely manner, we could praise the enforcement against those firms. Unfortunately, we are not there yet, Zach. I wanted to also respond to the quote you brought up. Wouldn't you also be afraid if there was a person who said, come to my home, I have cake, I just want to talk to you. And then when you got there, they tied you up and said, you owe millions of dollars. I feel like that is a great analogy for what the SEC has done to some <laughs> firms in the space. And so I, I don't blame people for being afraid of the SEC. They say one thing and then do another thing. Well, yeah, I would push back on the fact that that was not a great metaphor. Uh, I didn't quite understand where you're going with it. But I do think that we all agree on this panel that Elizabeth Warren is a little bit out there and we don't quite understand her takes on crypto. And we have great panelists coming up in just a second talking about how like different sides of the aisle have taken different stances on crypto. Excited to get to that in a second. And I think this is a good time just to reflect on that. Uh, just Elizabeth Warren has been so anti-crypto, but that doesn't mean that all of her constituents are necessarily anti-crypto. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans on the other side of the aisle who are pro-crypto, but there's also some skeptics and it seems to be sort of a divided line right now with Elizabeth Warren really being on one far extreme side. Zach, up to you. I will say I understand the take because crypto has yet to demonstrate itself as having a value proposition to the more progressive wing of the U.S. political class, right? For libertarians, for those right-leaning, there has always been the case that this makes sense. For those on the left, this has not been compellingly portrayed in a way that is finding adherents and believers on the more left-leaning side of the political aisle. I think that's something that the crypto lobbying class is reckoning with and needs to reckon with a little bit more. 
There is a case for financial inclusion for financial products that work for a vast swath of Americans. But that case really hasn't been made in a way that uh, doesn't come off as opportunistic grift. And I think that's probably the soul searching that might need to happen to the crypto lobbying class when they see stuff such as this. Anyway, we're changing gears, but we're talking about policy still because it is Coindesk's Policy Week. There's a lot of great coverage out on the site right now. And joining us right now is reporter and author Jeff Wilzer, known for his globe-trotting examinations of this crazy thing we call crypto. Jeff, how you doing? Good. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, you did this piece, great piece, looking at uh, countries around the world and their approach to regulating crypto. As you see it, which countries are getting it right? Which countries are getting it wrong? And is there sort of a common theme uniting them all? I think one thing that surprised me in my reporting is I went into this thinking, oh, wow, it'll be cool if we could just kind of take the best bits of regulation X from country Y and approach to NFTs from country Z and on, on, and on to kind of create this Voltron of like awesome platonic form crypto policy to mix metaphors there and date myself. And I was surprised that the people I spoke to were not really in agreement that, oh yeah, there's definitely one country clearly getting it right, or clearly the best in class is this country. The vibe seemed to be more that people appreciated experimentation and humility and not trying to like quickly do some like complete overhaul uh, that might be going the wrong direction entirely, right? So you know, for years, there have been appreciation for like the Switzerland's and Singapore's of the world for making it easy to set up shop, right? Or Malta. Okay, now it's easy to kind of like get a company or project headquartered there. But also I'm hearing experts say, that's not really enough anymore. Like still useful, but how is crypto actually regulated when it's actually used? I think there's appreciation by some for regulatory sandboxes, almost experimenting like in Mexico, in Canada, there is an attempt to let's try things without saying, all right, we've got it all nailed. So it's not as kind of an obvious silver bullet answer as I thought I'd find in this reporting. Sorry to disappoint you guys for a lack of complete clarity. We like the nuance. Well, we're we're not here for black and white, so we appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you. I was going to say, we're about to get a little bit more unclear now. Can you unpack why the U.S. is so complicated from a regulatory perspective? Sure. One thing is there's not, like in other countries, there might be, it's easier for one jurisdiction just to say, okay, here are the rules. Whereas no one's quite sure exactly which regulatory body owns or has dominion in the space, right? I think it's one of the big questions. How much uh, weights and power should the SEC have? Other regulatory bodies, other, we're not totally sure. So often it's being, things are kind of being left the state level, which is why you have this bizarre, like some crypto exchanges or projects are only valid in different states based on their regular regulation. So with a lack of federal clarity, it kind of goes to this, and exactly used the word cluster earlier, I guess the appropriate uh, technical term, what's happening at the state level. It would stay in the U.S. for one second and boot it up to Adam to go maybe with a little more international question. But you have this recent piece talking about crypto legislation in the United States. And as we talked about in the last segment, it's really fragmented. Like we like to divide things between like blue and red, Republicans, and Democrats, but that's not really how crypto has shaped up so far. I mean, there's definitely more of an edge of skepticism among Democrats 
but not so much among Republicans. Tell me about this piece. What was like the main takeaway from writing this article about legislatures and their view on crypto? Yeah, I think what really fascinated me to begin with was crypto was one of the very few issues where there's not some clean division of like, okay, obviously the left feels this way, the right feels this way. Like pretty much every other issue on the planet, you kind of know where both sides are going to fall. Historically with crypto, there's been a lot less of an obvious break one way or the other. I mean, the Congressional Blockchain Caucus has two or four co-chairs, two are Republicans, two are Democrats. The 40-person body is split with a pretty, it's a roughly even split, Democrats and Republicans. And historically, there's been support from both Republicans and Democrats. To piggyback an earlier analogy, lots of cake has been thrown at both sides of the aisle from the crypto industry. And so with that cake came support. So when no one's had been tied up in their house yet that I know of, but uh, with that cake, lots of goodwill across the aisle. I like the way, Will, I'd like your way to call the edge of skepticism. I think we're seeing that more on the Democratic side. I think post-FTX, you're seeing a lot, most of kind of the pushback and saying, okay, we need consumer protection. We need guardrails. And like, let's make sure FTX never happens again. Most of that energy is coming out of the Democratic side. The Republican take has generally kind of echoed what when I spoke to Representative Tom Emmer about this. In our conversation, he referred to, quote, Sam banking fraud or Sam banking fraud. He used the word fraud at least like nine or 10 times, right? So his kind of message was, this was all about one fraudster, one bad egg. Let's not let one, the sins of one awful fraudster, his words, I'm paraphrasing, let's not let this like sink the entire space. And so I think you're starting to see some more dividing lines of Republicans being a little more uh, skittish about overregulation and Democrats seizing this moment to kind of like, okay, we got the red meat of FTX debacle. This is the time to make our case that crypto is dangerous. Let's do what we can to have tough, stern, teethy protections. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Uh, Last question here. Over the last few years, we've heard growing calls for international regulations, basically on the idea that if rules are set at a national level, then you'll see companies flocking to the most accommodating jurisdictions. I like to call this line of thinking, there can be no alternative. Can national Mm -hmm. rules actually be effective in this type of an environment? Or on the other hand, is it even feasible that the whole world could possibly agree on a global set of rules that would give, you know, policymakers like Modi, uh, like India's Modi, you know, what they've been asking for now for a couple of years? I think it's a trillion dollar question, right? I don't think anyone has a clear answer. I mean, everyone can kind of speculate, including me, but I think, it, you know, in some sense, part of what all of us are fascinated by about the benefits and potential and possibility of crypto that also makes it so slippery, right? The fact that it is borderless, the fact that it is like the code knows no flag, right? Code doesn't bow to any Congress or king. So if half the world regulates this code and the other half doesn't, does it just kind of, does it live in the other half? Is it able to use in kind of like a dark illicit way in the half of it? I think that that's the grand experiment that I don't think anyone has any satisfactory answer to. And I, I kind of can't wait to see how it shakes out. I mean, this is, Thankfully, this is what keeps us all going, right? No one really knows. And it's, it's, there are a lot of chapters left to unfold, and it's, it's fun. Well done. Well played. Thanks, well sir. played. 
Uh, that's Jeff Wilzer. He joined us today talking about a couple of pieces he had for Coindesk Policy Week. Go check out the coverage over on the site. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. We are going off to China now where the Conflux token has spiked 60% as the blockchain integrated China's version of Instagram. So now 200 million users of Little Red Book, which is the Chinese version of Instagram, will be able to display Conflux NFTs on their profiles. This marks another milestone in China's embrace of Web3. Earlier this month, we spoke about the country launching its first regulated platform for NFT trading, which was created by state-owned Chinese technology exchange, And we recently learned that the country had a big push for their CBDC during Lunar New Year. Adam, going to toss this off to you. What do you make of this news? And China's, it feels like a new embrace for the NFT world. So the situation with China has always been an interesting one because culturally there's been a lot of interest and a lot of interest in the speculative parts of sort of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. That comes pretty directly into conflict, though, with the ruling government's priorities in terms of making sure that they keep capital flight from occurring, they keep the money that's made in China or that's coming back to China in China. That's something that's been very important to them. The country's had capital controls. It's what led to, at least we believe it's what led to many of the cryptocurrency bans, blockchain technology bans that we've seen over the years, most notably the mining one, I believe, was most recent. And then also there was one ban on exchanges. So NFTs coming back actually isn't that big of a surprise to me because there is really this hunger for this collectible, you know, consumption type uh, speculative marketplace. And NFTs don't really threaten the, the government's control of money. And it's less of an issue around capital flight. Honestly, I still don't think it's a great fit, but I think that there are limited options that they actually have in these types of situations. And you'll note that you said that it was a state owned company that was the one behind the technology rolling this out. That has some implications behind it, too, that I don't really think we have enough information to understand at this point, but it's definitely something I'll be watching. Over to you, Will. Yeah, I actually want to push back a little bit on what Jen was saying about this being a moment for Web3 in China, because I think it's just a continuation of the tech entrenchment policy that the Chinese government has been working on very slowly. They use these private sector companies that get big, that have a lot of money from the Chinese government. They balloon up and they approve them and they integrate them into whatever other tech stacks are out there. So right now we have like the Chinese version of Instagram and Little Red Book. Of course, that goes back to uh, the Mao Zedong era, which is like the, the propaganda booklet that everyone had to read during the beginning of the communist regime there. So like everything is very tied within control of the communist regime. And that's why you see only allowed partnerships, which is not very Web3, right? The, the, the purpose of Web3 is that I can go launch a smart contract on Ethereum anytime I want, and no one can stop me. I can launch whatever I want on top of Ethereum, and no one can stop me. I'm a paying user of an open, neutral protocol. This is the very antithesis of that. And in fact, if you look at it in the bottom of the article, they received $5 million from the Shanghai government in order to facilitate this. And Conflux itself has been getting a lot of funds from the Chinese government in order to grow its public permissionless blockchain. Uh, there's a few other details in there which are worth noting, like they're not allowing any ICOs on top of it. They're not allowing any like sort of DeFi thing. These things are like native to uh, Web3. That's what Web3 is about, open permissionless innovation. And this is not that. Zach, up to you. Yeah, I think those are all really great points, uh, especially sort of the cultural context there. I will say, removed from the cultural context, this is perhaps an example of Web 2.5, right? We hear from Web2 companies who have some believers in what Web3 can offer to their customer bases. And we see them championing products like this and rolling it into some of their traditional Web2 services, right? So that momentum, I think, is actually interesting to know. I think we're going to talk about it probably in our next story. But you look at like 
big brands like Nike sort of rolling out Web3 products in the midst of crypto winter. Stuff like that, I think, is still on the table for some of these teams that see these tools as ways to establish deeper, more meaningful relationships with their consumers, right? If we can sort of sell to these consumers the idea of increased ownership on their part, maybe that will look favorably on our brand for them going forward. And that's something that some of these big companies are willing to bet on, even as crypto prices generally crater, aside from the last couple of weeks. Anyway, those are my thoughts on that one, sort of connecting the Web 2.5 narrative to this development over in China. But I think we are going to move it along. Who's got the last one? That would be me. Uh, our final story of the day focuses in on scale-focused blockchain Polygon, which saw its re- transactions in the fourth quarter of last year range between 2 million and 3.7 million per day. All daily active users range from 350,000 to 1.7 million, according to a new report from the blockchain analytics platform Nansen. A good amount of that uh, traffic reportedly had to do with the collapse of FTX, which saw users making more on-chain transfers as they ran for safety. But other reasons included large-scale testing or larger-scale testing of a zero-knowledge scaling solution that will further sort of enhance the uh, brand as far as their overall goal, the launch of the NFT uh, Starbucks loyalty program, as well as landing the gig providing blockchain services for Instagram's NFTs. That's the U.S. one, not the Chinese one. Earlier in the year, Polygon also won the business of Reddit's NFT avatar series. In the battle to take NFTs mainstream, these are actually some pretty big wins. But of course, on the other hand, maybe Ethereum continues to uh, you know, develop, hits the scaling goals that they have, and obsoletes the need for any further scaling layers. Zach, I'll throw this one to you first. Yeah, I think you're right to home in on these wins. I mean, in terms of intellectual property, Polygon is racking up some wins. That Nike thing I mentioned, the the dot swoosh IDs, those are Polygon wallets that are minted in partnership with BitGo, right? So uh, whatever they are rolling out to some of these big brands who are interested in experimenting in the space, it seems to be working. So credit to Polygon Studios for getting some pretty big names in the door as it relates to some prominent NFT projects. And yeah, I think the bigger picture is right, Adam. Polygon is certainly its own network, right? This was sort of seen as a layer two initially. I really think of it as its own base layer. Uh, It's sort of of tangentially tied to Ethereum, but in reality, it's kind of its own thing. And I think if we zoom out and we expect Ethereum to ramp up its its own scale and perhaps sort of capture that narrative space that was occupied by these Alt-L1s in the last cycle, you know, you wonder about the long-term prospects of chains like this. Can they keep this momentum going? Can they find you know, more big brand name partners that get more users into the Web3 fold, especially if Ethereum can provide some of the technical foundations that previously would only exist on other chains. So I think in the long term, that is something to certainly be aware of. But for now, it does look like a pretty strong showing from Polygon specifically in the wake of some pretty dicey moments in the crypto industry recently. Jen, I think I saw your hand. I'm going to toss it your way. Yeah, you brought up some of the points I want to bring up. And I guess I just have a question on the back of that If we look at what's happening with Polygon, with the large-scale partnership that we've already mentioned in this segment, it reminds me a lot of Solana during the bull cycle, right? There were so many huge partnerships that it seemed like Solana's infrastructure couldn't really keep up with. They would go down for long periods of time. And so, Will, I'm going to kick this off to you. Should Polygon be looking at that scenario and other scenarios like it and taking notes? Like, what should they be learning from, you know, the, the instances we've seen of this in the past. I think the Polygon marketing uh, steamroller is going to come for all of us on the hash right now because I think they would disagree with everything you guys are saying and not for good reason, actually. Like, I sort of agree with what you guys are, are really getting at, which Polygon is sort of building out its place as like an L1 of sorts, but it does not market itself like that. If you look very closely at its documentation, very closely what its founders say, they always say that they are growing in line with Ethereum. They're trying to grow 
in line with the Ethereum brand. And so there is like a little friction there, right? There's this friction between are you a competitor to Ethereum or are you in line with Ethereum? And if you are a competitor with Ethereum, are you at least compatible and allow uh, everyone to grow on top of Ethereum? This is a battle that we're actually seeing with the NFT space. We talked about it a little bit yesterday uh, with how the, the Penguin, Pengu NFT project now went multi-chain. And they're allowing everyone to use any chain they want as opposed to just porting over from one chain to another. And I think this just sort of comes back to like user preference. What do users want? What are the tooling sets available to them? Do they like MetaMask? Do they like Rainbow? Do they like something else? And Polygon has a pretty slick platform. And so I think that they are really forward-looking in that stance. In terms of like, are they smart and should they look at Solana and stuff like that? I think you have to decide and then see what the future holds. The reason Solana and people don't really like it right now is because of FTX and because the price is down. If the price was up and FTX had not happened, people would love Solana right now. So it really just sort of depends on where fate lies. Zach, back to you. Yeah, last thought on this. I mean, certainly Polygon is a shining light in the EVM universe, right? The EVM universe is something that, uh, you know, this network of chains that rely on the Ethereum virtual machine, they make it easy to transfer between Ethereum, Polygon, Avalanche, you know, you have all these scaling things, right? So I think the emergence of like almost an EVM maximalism is something that we're seeing both among the developer ranks, but also uh, for users. So interesting to see. We're going to leave the show there, though. We got to bail. We had 17 seconds left, guys. This is a great show today. We had a guest talk about <laughs> stuff. It was super fun. So I'm fun. Zach. That's Adam. Jen. Will's here. We're the hash. We'll check you out tomorrow. Thanks for being here on Coindesk TV. And you have a great day. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. One. Two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.